Welcome everyone to our Alberta Health Services Calgary's own Patient Family Center Care Week podcast. My name is Paul Wright and I'll be your host today. I'm the manager of Patient Family Center Care for the Calgary Zone. Patient Family Center Care is, is a part of the integrated quality management portfolio within Alberta Health Services in the Calgary Zone. The importance it brings together are four teams to support the improvement in zone-based health services. These teams are comprised of our clinical quality improvement team that provides quality expertise to guide the system improvements, our Patient Family Center Care program that supports the development and implementation of Patient Family Center Care approaches, our patient safety team that enables clinical areas to recognize and review clinical hazards, close calls and adverse events, and to improve the healthcare system through learning and, and reviews. And lastly, our Safe Clinical Practice Program, which is a zone-wide program that collaborates and supports uh, teams to implement, evaluate, and sustain required organizational practices put forth through Accreditation Canada. Specifically, this week is Patient Family Center Care Week and our focus on the discussion today. This week is a very special week to all of us as it draws on the attention of our patient and families and how we can learn from each other to become more patient-powered in our approach to our care. This year's theme for Patient Family Center Care Week is exploring the concepts of patient-centered care and the opportunities that we can bring forward during a pandemic. So to launch our podcast to start to explore our themes, we're grateful to be joined today by Brian Dolan. Brian Dolan has had a career that spans more than 30 years as a nurse and a nurse leader with his background in both acute mental health and emergency nursing. He has a special expertise in lean thinking methodology, clinical service redesign, and patient flow. Brian is a change agent who is in constant demand and can take others on a journey that puts the patient at the center of care while delivering quality outcomes and improvement flow. His personal philosophy, while with staff's time is important, the patient's time is sacred. This informs his approach to service design and enables timely, safe access to service for patients while valuing staff, well-being, and the expertise in coordinating and innovating the practice. Brian has practiced and led initiatives across the world, including NPJ paralysis in the last thousand days. Brian has published over 80 papers and just recently been awarded the Order of British Empire. So welcome to my friend and colleague, Brian Dolan. Welcome, Brian. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for that. That's very generous obituary. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's great to have you here, Brian. I thought we could start off, and I know our focus is going to be about patient time and patient-centered aspects, but I'd love to start with and hear a little bit more about your nursing career, your journey into leadership. And I was curious if you could walk us through a bit of some of those highlights for yourself over the last 30 years. Oh, bless you. Thank you. Um, I think, well, I, I started my, my nurse training in the, the west of Ireland. And uh, for those who are curious about the accident, to learn from trades, I actually have one. Uh, but then after I did a couple of years in acute psychiatry, I, I, I fancied a bit of foreign travel. So I moved to England and I did my general nursing, adult nursing, if you wish to call it that, in uh, St. Mary's in London, in Paddington. And most of my clinical career was in uh, emergency care, but I've also worked in academic general practice. I've, I've the last 20 years or so with, with Linda Holt, I've been, who was also the, the UK chair of the Royal College of Nursing Emergency Care Association, written a number of books on emergency care together. We, uh, we started out on our own because a load of emergency departments were getting in touch saying, look, we're in real difficulty. We're trying to work out which way is up in terms of our patient flow. How do we enable people to get out in a timely fashion? So we started getting short to have to do this and we started working, doing that sort of work. And over that time, it's evolved into bigger systems flow and stuff like that. So at heart, we're still uh, ED nurses. But uh, in 2005, I got asked to keynote at a conference in Christchurch, New Zealand, and did so. And they said, look, would you come back and help us with work with our emergency department? They're great people. I said, well, how about I do five weeks 
So that was in, that's now what, 15 years ago. So it's very Irish five weeks, obviously, because it's still there. And I work as a long-time contractor as the director of service improvement in one of the most integrated health systems in the world, because as a, a re, if, if uh, this health system, Canterbury District Health Board is called, in the South Island of New Zealand. So it's a population of around a half a million in a reasonable size province. But if we use the same number of beds as some of the bigger cities like Auckland needed, we'd need 100 more beds in this system than we have. And part of the reason is by integrating care, by valuing people's time, you keep more people in their homes, which is the place they want to be. So that's the, the kind of space I work in. But I also work, you know, pre, just like BC, before COVID, I would spend about, give or take, six months here in New Zealand, about on like sort of eight-week cycles. Overall, about two months across the ditch, as they call it, in Australia, and the rest of the time back in uh, the UK and in Ireland. So that's what my the cycle of my year is. But then this year has been upended, as we know, for everyone. Up to last year, we'd, stay, we'd say to people, stay away from people who are negative. Now we're saying, just stay away from people who are positive. <laughs> so it's a measure of how much the world has changed around us. <laughs> so I'm very, I'm very, very blessed, I think, is how I see it. Um, I do stuff I absolutely love. I'm really passionate about. I'm really, really proud of being a nurse. But the time I spend in my head is, are there ways where we can do things that will enable people to be home with their loved ones? And that's where the last thousand days came from. And that subsequently was where NPJ paralysis came from. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate you sharing a bit of your journey. You know, in your bio, we outlined some of those key pieces that you've been involved in. And I really appreciate you sharing a little bit about current work relationships and environments as well. You mentioned the last thousand days. Can you tell us a bit more about that initiative and, and how you got started and where that all came from? Well, it's one of those, sometimes ideas come fully formed in your head. And I was talking to, about a decade ago now, I was talking to a group of uh, older people's uh, doctors, nurses, therapists, managers. And I was te- doing a teaching session around lean thinking, uh, which is very much about how you do identify and eliminate waste in health systems, indeed all sorts of systems. And I was talking through the things as like, you know, there's transport waste, inventory waste, motion waste, you know, overproduction, defects, waste, all that sort of stuff. One of the biggest wastes, of course, is, is time. It's the waste of time of people doing their jobs if you stop wasting their time you get less waste you know and what popped into my head fully formed as I was describing it to this particular group because they deal with older people was the construct of the last thousand days and and it runs around you like this is that if you are a a man and and, you know the life expectancy in Canada New Zealand UK is broadly similar if you're like if you're a man you can expect to live to about the age of 79 and if you're a woman this is why people have to acknowledge that in different different ages in indigenous people now we, we get that but this is the principle but if you're a man you can expect to live to the age of 79 if you're a woman you can expect to live to about the age of 83 but if you were an 86 a 76 year old man or an 80 year old woman what you have left is a thousand days now i know that once you get past the age of 10 you have survived childhood life expectancy goes up the longer you live the longer you can expect to live you know so so we know all this so in it's largely a metaphor that valuing people's time is really really important and the vast majority of people who were in hospital are older people and in one scottish study they found that 48% of people over the age of 85 died within one year of a hospital admission. And where it legally needs leads one to is this, is if you had a thousand days left to live, how many would you choose to spend in hospital? And for the vast majority of people, as we know, the answer is, is none. 
So how do we create a climate, organizations and cultures where while we recognize that staff time is busy and important, patients' time is sacred and especially recognizing and respecting that they in acute hospitals, people who are in hospital are predominantly older people. And as kind and caring and compassionate as we are collectively, and I do know this, is no matter where you go in the world of healthcare, and I've worked in lots of countries, uh, the only thing that really changes is the accent. And people are people. And the default setting of humankind, in fact, is kindness and decency. I don't think it's an entire accident. We talk of humankind because that is uh, that is the setting of, of, the, of the, the our species. So so valuing time, and I'm really, really proud, in fact, of the last thousand days, because it's a way of encapsulating the preciousness of our time. And there's only two days of our lives which are not 24 hours long. One we celebrate every year, and the other one is a reminder of the preciousness of life. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate outlining the last thousand days and, and the approach to that and, and really where it started. You know, I've heard you talk in the past in some of your other podcasts and, and specifically in some of your, your interviews about the concept of boredom in care. And I think that is directly related to patients' time. But can you tell me a little bit about boredom in, in care or unpack that for me? And, and why is it important? You think that we, we look at this, this important measure, this important piece? Well, boredom is, is something, it's, it's been hidden in plain sight in hospitals. So if you think about it, our, our medical colleagues, for example, and they're really hardworking women and men, decent, really good people. And, 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 and the team will do a ward round and they'll see a patient for five minutes and the junior doc sees the next patient, then the next patient, and then the next patient. And they're whizzing off and they know, don't notice time so much because they're flat out busy, same with the RNs and same with the therapists. But the patient is then sitting there for 23 hours and 55 minutes for the next round to come. And, they, you know, sometimes I wonder how many, uh, you know, urinary tract infections are caused because people are sitting cross-legged and hoping that they miss the doctor, you know, when they do their rounds. And this, in a way, is our, our um, we have a domesticity. We understand the, the, the rhythm of hospital settings. But for many patients, they don't. It's a novel experience. But they just sit there, the curtains are pulled across. And of course, with the curtains, you know, if they're in a multi-bedded room, they're not exactly a cone of silence. You can hear all the sounds that others are making. But sometimes people are just sitting there hour after hour and I do have a, a, a problem with uh, the notion of visiting hours for example now let's you know acknowledging COVID that's that's parking that side but it, you know I've never ever come across a hospital or a health system in the world that doesn't talk about being patient-centered and why therefore do we have visiting hours if they are because we've designed the too often the systems a around the results they get but B, fundamentally, they're designed around a convenience of staff. And that's not an especially palatable thought, but it is actually how it works when you when you take a step back from it. So you have people really bored. And believe it or not, it was a Canadian Defence Force. I think it was in the 50s who got involved in a bit of the dark arts of psychological warfare. And they lock, they didn't lock them up. They left people in a plane room with no noise, no sound no stimuli and within an hour I can't remember what the percentage of the, and, and the option was they could stay there um, or they can have an electric shock and leave and, and leave you know more most of the men said just give me the electric shock within about 20 30 minutes they were they were so busy you know and that's one of the reasons why solitary confinement is a form of torture it really is that disconnection and there's a great French word oublier 
which in the the castles you had an oublier and what they were was essentially was a, a hole that was dug in the cell and they dropped the patient in there and then they forgot them and there's a, a, a most brutal form of punishment to actually forget somebody's there and people are often really bored because they feel that no people have forgotten them and they don't know what to do with themselves they don't know what to do with their time and boredom is something that we underestimate in our busyness that people might be laying there bored with us. Yeah, that's a good segue for this next piece. It's really important, especially for our listeners, to be able to to take a few things away today. And you talked about understanding patients' time and the concept of boredom. How can our staff bring forward questions or understanding to help them know how to support patients around their time in hospital or how to be more supportive on their approach to uh, breaking up some of the monotony or how do we move towards activation of some of our patients and families? Are there any questions or activities that you might encourage our, our colleagues to ask? Well, I think the first one is, is there's a whole bunch of things and, and the most untapped resource in healthcare are patients and their families. So, and in some cultures, uh, so in India, for example, or in Brazil, families play a really, really critical role uh, in, in the care delivery. And I'm not talking about the, the high tech end. It's often about being there, being present. And in certain settings, incidentally, we also enable and encourage that as for loved ones in palliative care, for people who are in intensive care, you know, places like that. So that we, we, have, we find ways when we need to to make it worse. So the first thing is involved families and patients. The second point, most important thing, um, which I think is the most enabling thing, is to encourage patients to get up, get dressed and get moving. They end their PJ paralysis because people come into hospital, they get in their pajamas and they're paralyzed in their pajamas. And that's it, you know, that's and they don't get out those pajamas till the day they leave and like the campaign and bj paralysis started for that simple premise is it values their time and also as we've articulated it reduces or even prevents boredom if they have the independence and when people are dressed it changes how they feel about themselves because instead of being a, a patient with an ology or an osophy or a, an otomy or a thingamy Actually, then they become that person who's been a, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, a lawyer, a teacher, a, you know, a street cleaner. They have somebody, they feel they have identity again. It gives them that sense of self. Interestingly, it also changes how clinical staff see the patient. Because instead of being the person with the heart failure in bed 17, they're now Mrs. Reese, who has a, an interesting background because she was a florist. And have you seen, she always keeps, you know, she keeps those bright bands on her hair and stuff like that. She's a great character. Also, You know, we, we, we change how we see them. And we know we ran a, a campaign in the UK in 2018. And over 70 days, it led to over 700,000 people being up and dressed. So that's a real game-changing number. Because what, is, what we saw from the data, people were staying in hospital less time. Junior doctors would start to say, um, look, I know it's Saturday, but you're up and dressed and you look okay. How do you feel about going? As opposed to if they were in their pajamas in the beds, they'd say, oh, we'll see how you are on Monday. So that was one change. The other thing is there's fewer falls. We're running a campaign in Western local health districts in um, New South Wales. I think size-wise, it wouldn't be so different in size from um, Alberta. So it's a decent-sized district in, in New South Wales. And they, one of the wards, for example, because people are mobilizing, and that maintains their muscle strength in their legs especially, 
the number of falls they had in August was 10 in that ward, medical ward. Uh, last month, it was down to one. So you see a much improved safety. Obviously, pressure sores reduce. Staff well-being improves because we, we know when it's good for patients, it's always good for staff as well. So you start to mobilize people. And I have to give you particularly a shout out and Alberta generally, but you especially, because you, I came to Calgary while well, it was in 2018, April 2018. And uh, I was honored to, to be able to give a, 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 a talk at the hospital at Foothills. And, you know, from that spark, and we'd been talking for a couple of months beforehand, you know, Alberta is absolutely leading the way with NPJ paralysis. And what I love is the generosity of spirit you have. You, um, Captain Henderson and others, have been got and, and your team of encouraging other prom- provinces to come on this journey. So Canada is, you know, I love the place. I fell in love with Canada when I came. Absolutely love to come back again. But, you know, Canada has shown just what you can do with a simple idea which values people's times, makes them safer, improves staff, patients' experience and well-being. And sometimes, you know, we over-engineer stuff and it's the simple things that make the biggest impact. Isn't that true? And uh, Brian, Canada fell in love with you. I know Alberta did for sure. We're so grateful for your energy and your enthusiasm around speaking to us that day uh, across the province about patients' time and NPJ paralysis in 1,000 days. So we're going to unpack PJ paralysis a little bit more, but I, I'd love, before we t- transition, we mentioned at the stop, uh, uh, sorry, the t- start of the call that currently we're within a, a worldwide pandemic and, and COVID has really changed and impacted a lot of the way we provide care. A lot of provisions have been really focused on public health measures uh, and urgent emergent decisions have made. And with that, some of the, the challenges with patient time, I feel, have been thrusted upon us. Um, any thoughts or ideas uh, or learnings that from yourself that we can do differently to enhance uh, and not lose sight of patient time during, during the pandemic? Well, th- yeah, thank you. There's a couple of bits to it. I mean, first of all, we're involved in the world's greatest natural social experiments at the moment. Because what we're doing is asking people largely now, and particularly older people, to stay at home. And the consequence, the unintended consequence of what's called shielding, is it, is it called shielding in, a, in Canada, Canada as well? Uh, where you, people are encouraged to stay at home. Is that what you call it, shielding? Yeah, we're calling it uh, quarantine or isolation is kind of the, the general term. Yep. Which is, even, which is even worse, really, because the language matters. It really, really matters. And if people feel they are quarantined, not only will they be in isolation, they will feel isolated from their families, from their communities, from life itself. Uh, the UK and a number of other countries call it shielding, which I think, again, it, it creates an image of a battlefield metaphor, which I think is really unhelpful. Uh, I like the Irish phrase. Uh, the, the, the phrase they use in Ireland is called cocooning, which is, uh, and a friend of mine talks about um, uh, protection of endangered species. Uh, Dr. Liza Morton, who's done extraordinary great work, uh, research work on, on the impact of pajamas on people's self-perception. So certainly I'd encourage people to look up Dr. Liza Morton in, in Glasgow. But the thing is, deconditioning is the generalized loss of muscle, mental well-being, pretty much every physiological system, all body systems are impacted by deconditioning. And if you spend a week at the age of, at the age of 80, if you spend a week in a hospital bed or indeed in, in bed at home for a full week, you will lose 20% of your uh, quads power. That's the muscles in your legs. You will lose one and a half kilos of muscle mass and you can lose 10% of aerobic activity or if you like 
fitness. So you go backwards really, really quickly and it's, and it's hard to keep it going. And if you're stuck indoors, one of the things we really, really should be encouraging people to do is exercise as much as they possibly can. If they live in, um, I mean, the best place type of house is one where you've got stairs because people going up and down the stairs, for example, to the bathroom are less likely to have falls because they'll maintain their, their leg muscles. You know, so it's all of that stuff. Now, I suspect Canada being Canada and because you do, you know, hardcore winters, nothing by half. I suspect that, you know, there is a culture of people staying fairly fit and active while in the hard winter ones. That, that's like a supposition on my part. But it is more important than it's ever been. So that's one part of it. But the other feature of isolation is loneliness. And loneliness is associated with a 27% increase in early mortality. In other words, being, a, being and there's a world of difference between alone and lonely. Being alone is often something you can enjoy your own company. Being lonely is feeling dislocated and isolated from anyone else. And loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And I do wonder how many Canadian, particularly elder, older people, uh, elders, actually one of their biggest problems they face is loneliness. And one of the things, you know, Canada is a mad sports country. And no surprises that New Zealand is crackers about sports, as is Ireland and the UK as well. And one of the football teams in England, West Bromwich Albion, which is not so far from Birmingham, what they do is their sports fans, a sports fan club, they ring up people who are season ticket old holders, who are older people, and they'll ring them up and check in, and they'll just end up having a, a conversation about soccer and the games. And it's absolutely fascinating for these people because it keeps them feeling connected and alive and part of that thing that was their most important day thing on a Saturday was like going to the soccer. You know, and I think when you tap into communities, they are the solution in so many ways because relying on central government, and, and it, it has to be said, if you look objectively internationally right now, Canada, led by the Trudeau government, but also the provinces, have done, generally speaking, by international standards, a pretty decent job. Everyone's doing it hard again this year, right? Now, I mean, in Europe last week, I think it's a quarter of the world's increasing cases. I mean, there's no country in Europe this time that's escaped this. New Zealand's in a completely different place altogether because there's no COVID in the community now. Um, because it was evidence-based policymaking. So, and, and going hard, going early, making it work. So in a world of COVID, we have to rethink what we think and what we know. And I think one of the unintended consequences of keeping people away from their families is we're seeing, for example, data out of uh, the United States, where there's been a dramatic increase in earlier than anticipated deaths in care homes from people with Alzheimer's. So it's not just COVID that's having an impact, it's the loss of cognitive and physical function and being and taken away from their families. So I think in the era that is COVID, we're going to have to get real creative about how do we keep people connected with their families. And if they're ever in doubt, the answer always is trust the clinicians trust the patients, trust their families because the answers are there. It's not for senior leaders to come up with it. Trust the people who do this every day. They will have the best answers. Isn't that true? It's, it's been such a time of, of challenge, but also a, a time of creativity and, and pushing innovation. And I think we're starting to see some new creative ways uh, around breaking up isolation and loneliness. Technology is really becoming a, a forefront at that. So, you know, I hope and continue. And I think your advice of trust 
patience, uh, trust the staff. And I think it's also a piece of permission to try new things, to try them safely, but be okay if we fail safely as well. Um, we're always in a learning environment. So I, I completely agree with that, Brian. I'd love to, to switch focus, but we've already been talking a little bit about this and it's MPJ paralysis. So we know PJ paralysis is a term that we describe the negative and uh, physical and psychological effects experienced with patients who spend lengthy periods of time in bed uh, in their pajamas while in hospital. And we know, as you outlined, people with lengthy stays can lose muscle uh, strength, which leads to longer hospital admissions and, and negative outcomes, not only on health system, but for patients and families as well. Um, Brian, you've been blessed to work with many countries to implement and work with them around strategies strategies to for PJ paralysis. Do you have any uh, learned or lived experiences you could share with our listeners to overcome um, the initial resistance of, of another new program or another new idea, uh, but that really outlines the importance of patient time and, and getting patients up, dressed and moving? Any any key things you could share with our listeners? I think there's a couple of things. One is that it takes a village, and this is something everyone can be a part of. Part of. This isn't just about the nurses and the therapists and the doctors. This is about the ward clerk, the orderlies, the person at reception who sees them, encouraging them. You know, when the orderly uh, or the ward clerk sees them on the, on, on the corridor, say, hey, good to see you in your clothes. It's great, you know. So, and, that, and, and, you know, we used to say to people, oh, yeah, no, you'll need to take their clothes home because there's no room for it. And now we're going, yeah, about that. Could we bring them in again? And there's been some really great examples because, you know, legitimately, some people don't have them for any number of reasons. And we've seen examples of hospital aides setting up little cupboards where staff or family, you know, you know, staff or their, their, their families have said, is there something you're never going to wear again? Would you be happy to donate it? The big stores are surprised, can be surprisingly generous. We're saying, look, we've got stock. We're just not, you know, it's out. would you like to take all these, you know, pants and stuff like that? So getting creative can often lead to the greatest opportunities and then learn from everyone. We've got a, an NPJ Paralysis Facebook page, for example, and people are constantly popping stuff in. I also take a personal view is it is really important that we celebrate the wins and recognize what people are doing. And it doesn't matter who they are. Just give them the sign. It's not, and also keep everyone keep their ego out of the room. This is about focusing on what works for patients. And I know this to be true. When stuff works for patients, we know it works for staff because there's few things worse than going home feeling, oh, no matter how hard I worked, it was never enough. And seeing somebody who is wearing the lipstick again, you know, that sense of, of sense of dignity is really, really important for us. So I think it connects and resonates because this is, as a great Irish nursing leader talks about, it's about protecting our, uh, our future selves, Deirdre Lang talks about. Because one day we will all wake up and instead of being the ones delivering care, we'll be on the receiving end of care. And why shouldn't we have the ambition starting now to create the best, most person-centered system that doesn't forget who we are? And the way we do that is start today and you don't have to be perfect. You know, perfect is the enemy of better. Just get started. Don't overthink it. Don't spend months in locked in a room doing Gantt charts because a spreadsheet never inspired many people. You know, just get on and assume that the answer was yes. If not, blame me. You know, just say, I'll oh, go, Brian Dolan suggested it. Then so did Paul. He backed us. You know, just, it's that permission. And I, and I do know this, even at really senior level, I am still struck by the number of people who feel they need permission to do stuff. 
And this started from a conversation. I was out in New South Wales at the time, got a conversation on the, and the campaign started with a tweet that said, nursing was born in the church and raised in the army. And we put people in pajamas, which is their uniform, you know, and that's where the NPJ product started. And it was sent to Anne-Marie Riley, Pete Gordon, Tim Gillard, three outstanding nurses. The conversation blossomed. And here's the other bit of secret sauce. While stuff can come from the ground up, which it has, getting senior, senior support, the chief nursing officer of England, Jane Cummings, who was the CNO at the time, she got behind it. Then the other CNOs of the UK and Ireland got behind it. So you had this beautiful mix of senior leadership support, grassroots support, and there's three secret elements, three elements to a successful social movement. And we think MPJ Palace is around the two to two billion mark now on Twitter. It's uh, it's about it's uh, actionable. It is an action. End PJ paralysis. Black Lives Matter. Me too. All of these things are actionable. They're connected. It makes people feel they are part of something and they can be engaged in something. And the third bit of it is a thing called, uh, it's called extensible. Another way of framing that is people follow your mission on their terms and don't need permission to do it. So in a number of places like in Ireland, they're calling it Get Up, Get Dressed, Get Moving from the, the wonderful geriatrician, Dr. Amit Aurora. Uh, in, in Holland, they talk about end bent centricity. Uh, the great phrase of Johns Hopkins is everybody moves. And what, it doesn't matter what it's called. It's about engaging in the spirit of it. So you localize it, you make it your own. One thing I adore is the Canadian posters. They are so, you know, so, oh, you know I'm a lumberjack style. That localizes it in, um, in Scotland. They've got ones of Donald wears your trousers. <laughs> you know, so you also should try and make it fun as well. And that's really important too. So it's all of those elements. And you know, the number of people have said to me, gosh, it's just great fun. And then you know you're onto something right. Yeah. It's, if patients are laughing, staff are laughing too. Yeah, there's something to that common purpose. And, and humor and, and fun in the workplace grows that culture of team connectiveness. And you're absolutely right. Yeah, you've talked a little bit about this, but this is more from a, a grassroots standpoint, Brian. Uh, so a young leader in a health organization, whether a registered nurse, a charge nurse, a, a matron or a unit manager, what advice would you have for them if they're trying to consider implementing NPJ paralysis in their career, but they're not sure where to start uh, or where to go? Any thoughts around resources or, or people to connect with or where to maybe launch their, their platform? So I think that's an important point. So we have an npjparalysis.org website and people for free can go on. There's about 50 talks. I know you're in there. And uh, you know, so people can find out, you know, where do you start? But about, the, you know, what resilience is about, psychological safety, so leadership, clinical stuff around the, the, the physical, psychological impact. So there's a great um, library of resources available to people. Uh, our website also has posters that people can download. So, you know, people can have a wander around there and it costs absolutely nothing. I said the Facebook page as well. I'm always, always happy to be contacted and frequently am by folks saying, look, you know, do you have some resources and, and I'll happily share them. What we do say is please acknowledge source, you know, um, so that's that's quite imp important. And that's a you know, professional person, personal courtesy. But it's, um, it's about people feeling they've got permission. So I don't think you have to wait all the way. And this is 
this is sometimes a disconnect. I believe so many senior clinical and other leaders, you know, Catherine Henderson's a fantastic example. Sometimes we think, oh, we'll need to get permission from folk at the top. The folk at the top really want you to do this. They don't, they don't feel you need permission, but just assume the answer was yes. And I tend to work on the principle of, you know, do it before you do it first and apologize later, but you'll never need to apologize for making patients safer. And here's the thing, there's this anxiety tackling some of the thing concerns. One of the concerns is, oh, will people fall? Well, the problem with the, the perception of risk is the patient carries all the risks and us not doing something gives them even more. And we do it from a from a sense of, from a space of compassion and, and concern for that patient. And a, a physiotherapist, and they're fantastic, this is their model of thinking and model of care, but he said to me, you know, um, mobilization, he says, I'd see patients and they'd be, you know, looking absolutely flaked and uh, they'd be half asleep. And I realized what I'm actually doing is by keep letting them stay in bed, I am killing them with my kindness. And, and that's a really important thing for us to recognize that getting people up and mobilizing, it's a, it's a push to do it, but actually it's about, it's a kindness to do it. Just as you know, there was a time we used to keep people in bed after a heart attack for three weeks until we realized, in fact, the worst thing you can do is they're more likely to have a heart attack. You're not resting the heart. You're actually killing the patient unintentionally because you put them at greater risk. So learning what the myths are uh, means that you, you can tackle them. And it's also important to understand that while people may ask a lot of questions, questions don't always mean resistance. What questions often mean is people seeking to understand what's going on. So stay with them. People, first people change, then organizations change in that orders. So persist, stay with them, but don't wait for everyone to join. Just start N equals one. Get one patient up. Then maybe another day, get two. And you know what starts to happen, especially when you've got multi-bedded bays, is the patients say, why are you not up? Because the rest of us are. Or, we're, or even better, patients thinking, well, the others are. I suppose are better. <laughs> so it becomes uh, self-perpetuating. And I love the comments again in New South Wales. One of the nurse man unit managers, she says, what's lovely about this is the staff are doing this on the weekends when I'm not there because they believe in it so much. They don't need me to encourage them. They do it themselves. Then you know the culture has changed. Wonderful. That's brilliant. Thank you, Brian. Our listeners are always curious of, of what inspires you. Do you have any podcasts, resources, uh, authors, or even colleagues that you would encourage us to, to listen to around maybe a new reference, a new way of thinking, or something that inspires yourself? Sure. Well, I, I think there's an important thing that while not all readers are leaders, every reader Every leader reads. And I think it's important for all of us to read beyond the confines of our, of our specialisms and our technical know-how. One I'm, I'm finishing up at the moment is by a Dutch historian uh, called Rutger Bergman. And his book is called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And he puts forward why, you know, it's actually kindness is the default setting. And we see this in natural disasters. You know, when Christchurch went through some devastating earthquakes about a de decade ago. Last year, many of you will recall, there was the awful mosque shootings. But what you saw was the compassion and decency. That is, that is humankind, you know. Um, Jeremy Hyman's book, um, and I've, I've forgotten his co-author, uh, called New Power. And that's the one where I make, uh, I describe the ACE, you know, actionable, connected, extensible. Um, 
There's there's uh, upstream a new book by Dan Heath, which is understanding what happens by going upstream to find the root cause rather than constantly pulling people out the river. So there's a, there's a raft of great books. Anything by the wonderful uh, Canadian Malcolm Gladwell, he's an outstanding author. Tipping Point. Um, his new book is um, uh, it's, it's escaped me, but you know he's he's quite a prolific author. So that, that's kind of from a, a book's end of things. Um, I think there's some outstanding leaders out there. Helen Bevan is like a curator. So she's the chief uh, of uh, the NHS Horizons. And she's an outstanding person. Anything from the Institute for Health Improvement. Um, the, oh, the, the Academy of Fab Stuff. The Academy of NHS Fab Stuff. Um, they, uh, it's a repository, and there is a website for it, of simple ideas which they capture so everyone can see, oh, that's, we could do this where we are. And I think... It's about being generous. Treat knowledge as if you were a spendthrift. Knowledge isn't something you should keep and hoard. You should give it away as much as you possibly can. And counterintuitively, I leadership in my mind is not about control. What it's about is influence. You know, being an executive director in the NHS and you know, hundreds of staff and all the budgets. Actually, what I, you know, I don't have those roles now. I have roles that actually mean I can just have influence. And that's much more fun. And I'm also very privileged and honoured to be um, a visiting professor of nursing at the Oxford Institute for Nursing Midwifery and Allied Health Research and an honorary professor of leadership in healthcare at Salford University near Manchester. And having those vehicles is, is a joy. So I guess what gets me up in every morning is a sense of purpose that, you know, my parents, God rest them, they used to talk about there's no, and it's my dad's uh, 16th anniversary tomorrow, the, on the, well, tomorrow over here on the 31st. And they always used to say, there's no pockets in a shroud and there's no tow bar on a hearse, which is a, you know, a way of saying, you're not going to take anything with you. It's what you leave behind that matters most. And I learned recently, I think it was the New York Times, it was said, we die three times. The first time when our body fails us, the second time when we are put into the earth or go past that curtain. And the third time when our name is uttered for the last time. And I, I was very struck that that was quite um, a nihilistic, sorrowful way of seeing the world. Because I think our legacy isn't in our name, it's in our actions. Our legacy is in the ripples we leave behind in the universe that made it that little bit better. Um, I'm not worried so much about my name. I'm more worried about, will people I'd never meet get home to people that they love for one day more? And that's not a bad way for reason for getting up in the morning. Wise words, beautiful parting words. Thank you, Brian, so much. Uh, you're always into you know doing new creative Nobel things. How can people find you on social media or through your health 360 work? Is there anywhere we could connect with you? Sure. <laughs> I was going to say, well, they can talk to my parole officer. <laughs> <laughs> who's being grounded because I'm not going anywhere these days. <laughs> She's on furlough. <laughs> but, but actually, my, uh, my Twitter handle is uh, at Brian W. Dolan. Brian William Dolan. Brian W. Dolan. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. And we have the npjparalysis.org uh, website as well as our Facebook site. So thank you so generously for enabling us to, to, to shout those out. And I want to shout out, you know, the likes of Linda Holt, who's my uh, business partner in crime, who, you know, she's uh, creative and outstandingly so. And actually, what is also important, I think, for any leader is to have somebody who will challenge them, who wants to constantly test their thinking so it'll sharpen it. So, uh, you know, that that's, I think, a really important 
blessing in anyone's life. People who care enough about you to be the best person that you can be and will tell you the things you don't want to hear, even if you need to hear in terms of your thinking and stuff like that. So definitely a big shout out to her too. And and it is Dolan and Holt Consultancy Limited Health Over 360. So yeah, that's that's how you can find us. And I should say just very quickly, because uh, it's just been developed, we have created a new leadership index called iCare. And we were talking about it before the podcast. And, and I think we're going to be making it available to people, as far as I know. We've just literally, it's been put together this week. And it's, iCare stands for Innovation, Compassion, Attitude, Resilience, and empathy. Sorry, <laughs> it is that new. And uh, what's really exciting is that that is teens because individuals can see how am I on that journey, and then you can check in in a couple of months. How am I going as as a, as a team, as individuals? And I think that's a really exciting new thing because we can't ever stand still. This is not the international year of the nurse and midwife any of us expected. But you know what? What it does is shows that we've never stopped innovating, being compassionate. We've got a great attitude. We are robust and strong and, and resilient. And we never lose sight of our empathy. What an amazing, amazing privilege for you and I to be members of this profession. Isn't that so true? And I was going to comment on the year of the nurse in 2020. I want to thank you, Brian, for continuing to inspire all the nurses internationally out there and following your footsteps and inspiring us to to do great things, to be bold, to, to try new things and, and do do it in the mindset of that patient time and focus. So Brian, thank you so much for connecting today with us to share your knowledge around patient time, the importance of getting patients up, dressed and moving. It's important more now than ever during the global pandemic. You're a true inspiration, my friend. I thank you greatly. I look forward to the days we can get you back on Canadian soil and we can partner together. All the best. And thank you for joining us for our inaugural Patient Family Center Care podcast. It's been truly an absolute blessing. Thank you very much. Thank you so much and stay positive and test negative. (laughs) All the best to you, Brian. Cheers. God bless. Take care.